Have you ever been hired to name a product or a service or a business? Naming is one of the most fun kinds of projects that you can work on and also one of the most difficult because so much depends on getting things right. Does the name you come up with describe the product or what it does? Is it desirable? Is it easy to say or spell or remember? Is the URL available? Is the trademark available? Is it too close to a name or a term that your competitor uses? Naming is hard. So we invited copywriter Avi Webb to join us for this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast to talk about his process for naming and what we need to think about if we're going to make naming a part of our business services. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Accelerator. That is our program designed to give you the blueprint, structure, coaching, direction and community you need to accelerate your business growth in four months. So you can go from feeling like an overwhelmed freelancer to a fully booked business owner. We're actually opening this program, the Copywriter Accelerator, for new members next month. And if you have any interest at all, just jump on the wait list to be the first to hear all the information about the program when we open it up in August. So to do that, just go to the show notes and check out the link for the waitlist. Or you can go to the copywriteraccelerator.com. Okay, now let's jump into our interview with Avi and find out how he became a copywriter. How I ended up as a copywriter is, I don't know, that interesting. I, I uh, About when I left school, a friend of mine was involved with a children's museum that was just rising in Brooklyn, Kira, maybe you know the area on Eastern Parkway, the Jewish Children's Museum in Crown Heights. And they were just opening then and looking for a creative team. He knew me from camp. I had been involved in like writing plays and songs and sort of the creative writing kind of guy and pulled me in to see if I could be helpful. So, you know, what do you do? I said writing. I don't know why exactly at that time, but that really became the first time that I wrote to persuade, although I couldn't have put it in those few words at the time. Um, they were looking for sales content and collateral. They were looking for membership type stuff. And, you know, different from the things I had been doing, which was, like I said, creative type of writing um, to be enjoyed. That was the first time that I got the importance of writing things to compel and to persuade. And so from there, I sort of uh, kept going. So you were doing creative writing, like stories, poetry, that kind of stuff before? Yeah, a little bit of poetry and plays and story and song lyric type things. Not professionally. This was like kind of as a teenager and as a counselor, that type of thing. So it's like okay. if someone asked me where my creative experience is, that's what I reached for. It wasn't wasn't so intentional. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then as you started writing copy for this client, what did you do to figure all of this stuff out? Because obviously you hadn't been thinking of yourself as a copywriter or even advertising yourself as a copywriter. You were just sort of helping out. How did you like turn that corner and really turn yourself into a copywriter? Yeah. Not only was I not calling myself, I didn't, I didn't know the term. Probably three or four years into being a copywriter, I didn't know what the job title was. They had very specific needs, which sort of worked the backwards way of some clients where they're like, I need something to, you know, just write something. And then the copywriter needs to say, well, what do you need it to do? And sort of dig into all those things. At that point, they were a brand new museum and they were looking for somebody to 
right collateral that was going to get people in the door. So it was a pretty straightforward uh, first assignment, you know, like a trifold brochure that was going to be left around different parts of New York, sent around to the public school system, uh, just various things like that that had a very clear goal and a very clear need. So, you know, asking questions of those people then, I guess intuitively I started to ask what people that were going to be reading this wanted to know and what would compel them to join it. But I didn't have a very clear process or understanding of, you know, where to be looking for those things. So let's say I start my own museum, which would be pretty fun. What would you recommend for me if I want to attract people, get people in the door based off your experience? What worked? I think you probably have a good sense of where I would go with that answer. Really, really every single experience and every type of potential visitor and every time is going to have a different message and different way to go about that. In this case, I had mentioned that I was involved with the Jewish Children's Museum. There's a backstory to that, which some listeners may be familiar, that there was a Jewish student who was killed on the Brooklyn Bridge in 1994 uh, for being Jewish. He was, there was a, a, a gunman who pulled up alongside a van load of yeshiva students and, and opened fire on them, and that you know, Ari Halberstam was killed then. And his mother was the one who spearheaded this museum to teach Really, a, a big motivation of hers, I think, was to teach the public school system or to just engage the public school system with the Jewish community in New York to sort of create this familiarity and, and in that way get people to understand each other a little bit better. So a big goal for them was to speak to public school students uh, who weren't necessarily driven to, you know, understand the nuances of Jewish culture. So it was just kind of to engage with cultures different from themselves. So I guess my long-winded answer to you is how I would go about pushing your eventual museum is to understand the motivation of why you built it, what people might be interested about it, uh, individual groups of people that might be interested in coming toward it, and find how to create a compelling and concise message to get them interested. I want to curate the Museum of Cura, the, like all the stuff that goes in, like the cheerleading <laughs> outfit and the old retainer that she I mean, might have I had. got rejected from cheerleading. There's no cheerleading <laughs> outfit. That yeah, I'm not that surprised, Cura, that you, you reached for that particular example, because I think there's a lot that you could probably put into a cure, Museum of Cura. Yeah, all the costumes. <laughs> this is this is, this is is a, a future project for us, I think. Yes, we'll, another we project. need some help with Another it. project. <laughs> all right. So, Avi, so as you were working then with the museum and sort of figuring out the copywriter stuff, how did you go from that to now finding additional clients or, or the next job? Like, build that uh, career ladder for us. So the, the bulk of my copywriting career happened right after that, in that I, I created a, a role in that museum called Staff Writer, and it was sort of PR plus marketing and, and a mix of it all. And at the point that that, you know, I, I felt I had grown out of that, or maybe they felt I had grown out, I don't remember exactly. Um, there was a boutique agency here in Brooklyn as well that was looking more specifically for a copywriter. They were really design heavy, but they knew they needed somebody who can create actual strategic language for what they were doing. And so that's where I took my next job. And I was there for about nine years as kind of the jack of all copy. I did really all you know, print ads and, and packaging copy and shipping email <laughs> receipts and just really anything that our clients came to us with that was related to language became, like it got, came onto my plate. And, and so I cut my teeth on that. 
and really enjoy this. So can I get a timeline here? Because I need to just put all this into context. What years were you working at this agency? And then when did you start to open up and take additional clients and really start your own business? I think I went in-house around 2007 or eight. It was before the recession, but not long before. And then I went solo about 2017, 16, 17. Okay. All right. So what happened around 2016, 2017? What inspired you to jump and go out on your own? My wife, primarily. <laughs> um, we, I had been working there and I, it was a great team and I'm still close with them. We had, a, we, we had a great thing going there. I mentioned that they were very design centric and I felt that there was always going to be a design first focus. So when projects came in that could use a copywriter, I had a lot to do and I had a lot to say about it, uh, but it wasn't a, a real reliable flow of projects necessarily that really needed the skills that I was beginning to really dig into and develop. Um, and there wasn't a ton of growth there. So it, it just was time, I think, to uh, step out and see if we could turn this into something bigger. More, and on the one hand, like from like just the money side of it, do, do something that I could make more of, make more off, off of, but also have more of a say in the types of research and questions I was asking and, and goals that we were reaching for and copy we were creating. Um, I had found essentially in that job that I was getting so much about, you know, the client wants a six part print ad to do X, Y, and Z. And we'd start digging into the questions with the client that says, you know, why are you pushing that message? And why to this community of people? And why in this publication? And what I would find is that they really often starting the marketing part of this, you know, of their investment long past where they can be getting a lot of people interested, um, which is kind of how I went off to start my own business and also to focus specifically on that, what I would call first encounter messaging. You know, when someone just sees your truck driving down the road or, or hears about you from a friend who refers you not as Global Solutions LLC, but as something that really is a headline to, to a story. Um, around that time, a lot of these things happen, you know, at the same juncture. So I went off to start my own thing and did it in a way that can focus on this particular aspect of the copy. So before we go deeper into the kind of work that you do today, Avi, I'm curious, you know, with that design experience, and you mentioned the projects were design first as opposed to copy first, do you think that there are any advantages at all of starting with design versus copy? I would just love your thoughts about the juxtaposition there because so many of us work with agencies or designers and they, they obviously are starting with design. I tend to push back against that, but I'm wondering, and maybe there are some advantages that I haven't seen. That's a really, really interesting question. I don't know if it's an advantage to start with design. I absolutely appreciate all I learned in a design firm and really apply uh, a certain layout to, to my copy as well. And working with designers, I, I talk with them all the time that I don't want to see 50% copy and 50% design and then call that 100%. It's like 75% of the copy and then 75% uh, 
of visual communication and together you've created something. So you're creating two different languages. Some people are visual learners. Some people are, are you know, word readers um, and you're communicating on two levels. So knowing that what you're writing needs to be designed and starting from that place, I think is invaluable. It's really, really important. I think for us as copywriters to think it through to the end, not necessarily what it's going to look like, but it needs to look like something. And so if you're writing a website or you're writing product packaging um, that's going to have a fold somewhere and you're like, well, it's, I want these massive letters to say whatever. If that's not going to work in practical design because of how packaging is created or because of how websites are clicked on or whatever, whatever is going to happen, you need to be conscious of that. Now, I don't see really how design could, you know, how it could start with design in most cases. I was recently working on a project and, you know, of course, I, I loved the copy that I was handing to the client. It was for a website and I had wireframed it. It was a rough wireframe, handed it to the designer. The designer just didn't know how to handle the copy at all. It was like, almost like they'd never seen copy and didn't know how to lay it out on the page, which which can happen. How would you recommend copywriters work with designers and we're not necessarily working in a larger agency, you know, we're freelancers working with other freelancers so that we have a smooth transition. It's more collaborative. The designer understands how to treat the copy, even if they are less experienced so that we have a better final product. I think this goes back a little bit to understanding what their experience might be before jumping into it. And this is something I do with clients as well. It's a really simple question that I added to my form some time ago that is, that is very helpful. And that is, have you ever worked with a copywriter before? And what that does, what I've seen it do, is first of all, trigger a thought on the part of the client or the other creative, if it's a, if it's a designer or something. There's an aspect here that, that there's a learning curve here that I might not already have. And so just creating that conversation, not here's what you need to do or here's what people get wrong and I want you to do correctly. Just understanding, have you done this? Have you worked in this dynamic before? Um, so that if the answer is no, it leads automatically to the thought of, okay, I do want to ask questions. I do want to figure out, I do want to understand and leave space that it's not just my process. There's also a copywriter and a client and all of that. So just starting with their familiarity and there's nothing wrong with saying no. It's just a question of where we need to, to talk uh, about this. And working with the, a client as well to find out who they intend to design with. And does that designer have the particular experience that we're going to need for this project? And if not, would you be open to another recommendation? Or would you, you know, understand that at the very least that we can't control the ultimate outcome? Uh, we can do the best we can. So those are some areas I would do it. And then in my own process, I do provide uh, like a transition once I, once I deliver a copy to talk directly to the client and the designer together to be sure that we're speaking the same language. Because I've, it's obviously in all of our best interest to know that the copy we're writing and that the client is, has engaged us for, you know, gets to the world in the way that we understand it can do well. 
Yeah, I, I like that your career has started out like this. Mine started similarly. I think there's almost an advantage in having to work with designers and other team members early on that forces you to start thinking about, okay, how is my copy going to integrate with what they're doing? Uh, you know, how do I bring in this person's perspective so that it's not all on us? Which sometimes, you know, I, I revert to that now, you know, because I'm here alone. I'm working on the copy. The copy is the most important thing, at least in my opinion. And you know, I hope the client's opinion, but I, I admire that. And I think that's maybe a, a smart um, starting point for a, a lot of copywriters. And it's not really my, my question. I think I'm just like following up. But having said that, let's talk about what you're doing today, Avi, the kinds of projects that you tend to work on, the kinds of clients that you work on. What does that look like? Now, when clients reach out to me, I have made a little bit of a name for myself as the name guy. I specialize in brand name development and messaging uh, roadmaps that come from that. And my first question to people who reach out to me is what scaling roadblock are you running into that you can attribute to messaging? And what that looks like is very often to a company that might have some success, a million to $5 million in revenue, five, 10 employees, and they're doing very well regionally. They're going, you know, they've got a lot of first circle clients and then second circle referrals, direct referrals. They're going to the networking events, et cetera. But they're starting to see that when they show up to those third circle, you know, flying to a networking event or industry conference of some kind, it becomes very difficult for them to communicate in a really short and punchy way why they're worth stopping and listening to. And when companies go, you know, reach, reach that sort of point, they'll realize that if we had just a really clear sense in our own heads, in our team, as our team is growing, something that we could hand that growing team to understand what we're trying to communicate here. If we had that in hand, we could really scale and sail in a way that we're not able to right now. Yeah, I feel like we skipped over, you're the name guy and you're, <laughs> how did you become the name guy? Cause it sounds like you just, you know, you just figured it out one day and that's your specialty. I know how brilliant you are at that because I've seen that. I've seen some of your work and we know positioning is is hard for copywriters. It's hard to figure out what your specialty is, even though we help our clients do this all the time. So I'm just curious how how you ended up really stepping into that specialty and and owning that specialty and feeling confident in it. So I'm, I'm going to cheat here and say you can check out my LinkedIn post from today. If anyone's listening to this, this is uh, June 2nd because I just posted about this specific thing. And because it was a LinkedIn post, it was skill, thrill, and bill. That was the Venn diagram that I kind of used to find my specialty and that I recommend others to use. And what that means is the skill is something that I, I find speaking to a lot of other copywriters, they are really intimidated by having to compact a full message or even the beginning of a message into one or two words. To me, I have found that to be really where I shine. So the one-liners and slogans and a turn of phrase that really just gets a smile or gets someone thinking or an aha of some kind, that's somewhere that I've found myself to, to do well with, where others are much more into communicating over the course of 5,000 words. Conversely, I have a really tough time with like long form copy and get bored by it easily. And I just, it's not really where I, where I love to be. So the first part was the skill, you know, not just being able to do it, but, but then digging into that and seeing how I could turn that into a reliable process and product. 
The second part is the thrill as, a, as sort of the other side of that same point is that I just really, really enjoy that. Being able to get a laugh out of somebody or a smile or an interest in hearing more with a, a really quick line is, is thrilling. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and then the third part is, was there a market for it? Will people pay for two words, which is what many people think a name is? Obviously, the process itself is all the you know, strategy going into it and then the name and if there's a slogan and then all the copy and, and roadmap that comes out of it. But essentially, when people think of name just as a name, it's just a couple of words. So how will people value that? So figuring out how to turn that into product that specific type of businesses are looking for and value highly was eventually how I felt much more comfortable saying, you know, this is what I do and this is what I'm focused on. So yeah, I know we've got a ton of questions about naming, coming up with names, all that stuff. But while we're talking about value, one of the challenges that I've seen copywriters have when we're hired to write a slogan or come up with a name is that because the deliverable is only a couple of words, oftentimes we feel like we can't charge several thousand dollars for it, even though the process of coming up with a really good strap line or a tagline could take weeks, right? Or with coming up with a name could take literally you know, hundreds of hours. And so I'm curious how you've crossed that divide. How do you get your clients to understand the value of a name or a tagline? How do you just have that conversation with them? There's three things I think that come to mind when you ask that. The first one is not everybody will, and that's okay. And I say that sometimes on calls, what you would charge X, Y, well, I try not to even get on the call if I get a sense that that's where they're going. Somebody literally said to me last week on LinkedIn, can you I see, I could even pull this up and read it verbatim. Can you come up with a name in 20 minutes? And we had a very interesting back and forth. Did no. not end up booking a call. Oh, but it was, it, he said, oh, he started with how long does it take to make, to, to come up with a name? So I said, 15 years and four weeks. And he, of course, thought I was joking. And he was like, what? What are you talking about? Could you do it in 20 minutes? I said, you know, it's not, there's no straight answer to that, but I was just answering you that with the 15 years of messaging experience I have behind me, I could probably come up with yours in about four weeks. He didn't appreciate that. But I know I had mentioned there are three, three things that came to mind. Number one is not everybody's going to be the right candidate to value it, and that's okay. You know, I'll say, I'll say to people, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think this is an important piece when we're dealing with people valuing our products. Often I've found that people are they feel bad about themselves for not knowing the value. And so it gets into this weird conversation where, wow, you charge so much and now they're accusing you of charging too much. Where really it's about like, I'm not the idiot here, right? I, I should have known that this is worth that. So I like to frame these conversations generally to say, I understand if this is not the right value for your project. Uh, not, every, not every project is. And this, in this way, just takes some of the, the uh, sting away from the client or the prospect. It's not your fault that I charge what I charge for something that people will value at that value. It's just not the right thing. But the other one is, there are certain, the second piece I think is that there are companies that understand this very, very well. Founders, others who have done, who have made, you know, have started businesses before Fortune 500 companies, they, they spend a ton on getting it right. I mean, if you have a, a retail product that needs to sell in a row of 30 other similar products, they, they understand the value of positioning this correctly with a single word and slogan. So there, so you have people that are, that know this as well. And the third piece is once people are past the point of asking for a name, I do pretty deliberately talk about the product in much more detail and scope. And so when I'm on a, 
an intake call and people are, you know, okay, so you talk to me about having this name and then you'll come with it. So how much does it cost? I'll say, well, and then I'll repeat the steps of the process to go through the project that you're talking about, understand your industry a little bit better, speak to some of your customers or those that are, you know, others in the, in the business, uh, and then come up with five, up to five potential names. Each one will have been vetted for, you know, I'm not going to bore you with each of the details, but I'll, I'll just make it into the project that it is and then drop the number. So there's a really a good sense by the time that conversation is had that it's not, you're not paying for two words. That's really important. Can you talk about how you've packaged this in your business? Because there could be some copywriters who are interested in getting into this space and starting to sell similar packages. What are some of the packages you've created around naming? My, I would say flagship package is the research and recommendations. I, I recommend up to five names, not five names, if there's reasons I would do more than one and reasons that I wouldn't, that can get you to market with reasonable, I would say with full, I would aim for, but I'm not a trademark lawyer. There's a lot of variables that are beyond our control, but with a reasonable confidence that this can do well within the, the market that you're moving this product or service or company into. So that's kind of the general project. And then for those not looking for that kind of thing, because they have a specific sort of a messaging barrier, or they're looking for uh, some clarity in another way that's not, that's not going to result in an absolute product, like this is what I'm going to put on my, you know, what I'm going to call my product. I do more of a consultation where I will sell a full day intensive or half day intensive or a brand therapy hour. And those are more of show up on a certain day. We're going to take the challenges that you have in a specific, whatever you're dealing with, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start on the beginning of the day, prioritize it and brain smash copy or solutions or messaging smoothings, whatever we can do over the course of that time. So I found that those two extremes help most of my customers and clients to, to have some sort of solution, either get the product or get the, the you know, the, the consultation and brain and, and come out clearer on the other side. And Avi, when you're doing a naming project, do you do things like URL searches or trademark searches or any of the legal background, or is it just straightforward? I'm going to give you a bunch of names and the rest of the figuring out how to make it work is on the client. No, absolutely. I, I, I give it as complete as I can. And one of the things that I've found from working with other service providers, attorneys, accountants, one of the most frustrating things is I don't know what I don't know. So if you hand me my, you know, 1040 or whatever from you know, my taxes and say, here, go take it somewhere. I don't even know if I have the right documentation. I have no idea where to send it or file it. Right. So I do try to give as complete a picture of what you're going to need to do with a name like this and with a, with a, a brand direction. And I do as much as I can of the legwork to clear that you're going to have a sensible URL, social names, uh, and, and as much as I can do as a non-attorney to say with 95 or 99% confidence, this should clear trademarking. If I, if I couldn't do that, I wouldn't recommend a name to, in most cases. All right. So beyond the fact that I'm so excited that Avi started his career in Brooklyn, what stood out to you, Rob, as you were listening to this part of the conversation? 
Yeah. So there's a bunch of stuff that uh, I, I like and that I was glad that Avi mentioned. I, I like the discussion about design first or copy first. It's always a tension when you're working with a team. And as I mentioned, you know, I started my career working in-house with a bunch of designers. Then I worked in an agency with a bunch of designers. And at one point I had, you know, a, a whole creative team working together. And I think there's attention that when we're working on our own, as kind of mentioned uh, during the interview, that, that we don't get, we, we don't always think through the design side or how is this going to present or, you know, should there be sidebars, different elements and how that all plays together. Sometimes we just throw it all onto the page and we trust the designer is going to understand it. And I, I've had that experience before where the designer absolutely does not understand it. The design is a disaster for communication. Yeah, it looks really nice, but none of the messaging comes through. So um, I thought Avi's approach to that and noting that it's not always copy first, it's it's probably also not design first, but that oftentimes we need to speak both of those language and languages and work together in order to make the work that we create work. I, I just, I appreciated that. Yeah. And I think there's a lot we could do as copywriters to strengthen uh, the relationship between the copy and the design. I shared in that conversation with Avi, you know, a recent project that wasn't going well as far as the final design and the implementation of the design. And when I look back, there are things I could have done to help that project be even more successful for my client. I could have asked for information about the designer from day one when I started the project to have a conversation with the designer early on and just touch base. I've done that on previous projects, but I just kind of left it out this time. And I think anytime as copywriters, we can connect with the designer we're going to end up working with, or at least our clients working with, it just cuts out some of that tension from the beginning and helps everyone you know, really show up on the same page from day one of the project. And so that's something that I need to do moving forward with any, any projects that will involve another designer. And that communication is really important. You know, the project that I mentioned that was a disaster, the designer was a label, a packaging designer, and I had written a sales page. He designed the sales page to look like a label for this lotion, this really killer lotion that, um, that it was a great product, but again, it just calls for a different kind of design. And so sometimes that communication is just really important, making sure that the client knows the difference between, you know, how to communicate on say a package versus a sales page, all of that stuff that we know, sometimes a client, you know, doesn't know, the designer may not know, and that communication is just critical. And it's also worth noting when, when something goes wrong on a project, or even when it doesn't go wrong, you know, you can be the point person for your client. So even you can continue to provide support, even if you're not a designer, you still, you still are in charge of making sure that the copy shows up in the best light, that the copy converts, that it's working. And so I would recommend staying involved in the project until the very end so that you can add your, your opinion and um, feedback on the design as the, pro the project moves forward. And that's something that clients will appreciate if you're not already doing it, just to say, I'm with you until the end. I will offer that feedback and send you video reviews of the final design, even after I've handed in all the copy. Um, that can go a long way. And I know clients appreciate that. Yeah, another thing that I really liked is Avi's turn of phrase, the skill 
Thrill and Bill. I, I thought it was just kind of a fun way to think about what we do. Skill, you know, is do you actually have the ability to to you know write as a copywriter, or if you're applying this to something else, the ability to do the thing that you say you can do? Do you enjoy it? Do you get the thrill from from doing the work? And Bill, you know, can you actually make money? It's it's a, a useful way of thinking about that. I think that applies to how do we choose our niches or how do we identify the problems that we can solve for our clients. So again, just kind of a cool turn of phrase, and and shows why Avi's so good at naming. But skill, thrill, and Bill is a nice way of thinking about that. Yeah, why am I not surprised that skill, thrill, and Bill is so catchy um, with Avi as a naming expert? Uh, we also talked about uh, really finding the value and helping identify the value in packages like these naming packages. But a lot of Avi's advice can apply to any of our copywriting or marketing packages that we're trying to sell. And really speaking to the value because we will have those prospects who are like, hey, can you just come up with a name in 20 minutes for me and bill me for your time? And so I could just pay for 20 minutes. Uh, and I love Avi's response, you know, where he's, he said, it took 15 years in four weeks to come up with the name for that product. And so I, that's just such a great reminder for us as copywriters, even if we're not focused on naming, you know, when we're handing over deliverables to our clients, it's definitely not about the time. Um, and it, it is about the value and the value you'll provide with that asset over the next few years or beyond. But it's also about, you know, the decades of experience you bring to the table. Sometimes it's also the life experience. It's the professional experiences. Um, it's your X factor and the expertise and all of that is rolled up into that final product too. Yeah, it reminds me of that story that people tell. It's probably apocryphal about Picasso being asked to do a drawing in, you know, a couple of minutes and then, you know, asking for a million dollars for the drawing and the person balks and course, you know, Picasso says something similar. It's like, Hey, it took me my entire career to be able to draw that, that drawing. And the value that we bring to the table isn't time. It's never the time that we spend doing something and a name or a tagline that may last a company for decades has an amazing value. You know, companies that do naming and come up with strap lines and taglines, they literally charge tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars for that work, even though the end result is one word or you know four words in a tagline or whatever because the work to get there to make sure that it's differentiated that it reflects the brand all of that is work and it takes far more than 20 minutes or even in most cases two or three weeks to really get it right yes and i want to go back to the beginning of the conversation where we talked about his initial experience at the museum working at the museum and um trying to get people in the door. And that was his objective and creating copy to do that. And I think it's such a great reminder that what we do as, you know, communication experts and copywriters is, is quite simple. You know, the, the outcome our clients desire is really simple. It's like, get people in the door, get people to say yes, get people to open this. Um, and sometimes I know I can overcomplicate it and think about the funnels and all the bells and whistles when it's really like salt. It's just solving a problem for people. It's just getting them in the door, getting their attention. Um, and it can be as simple as that. We don't have to overcomplicate it. Yeah. I think this is one of the first mindset things that we talked about in the copywriter accelerator is just, you're not 
there to write words, to make the words sound great. You are there to solve problems. And once you make that shift in your business, it really opens up so many possibilities of ways that you can work with clients, even beyond copywriting. Yeah. And you could even give yourself a title that speaks to that problem that you're solving and kind of rather than calling yourself a copywriter, or maybe you call yourself a copywriter and then you give yourself a secondary title that you lead with that speaks to the problem that you solve. I know we've talked about Rob Scrobe many times in the podcast in his interview, but he, you know, he calls himself a a membership retention expert because that's what he does. He helps his clients retain their members And so is there another title that you could give yourself that could really speak to the problem you're solving so that immediately a prospect gets it and knows if you can help them or not? Yep, I I agree. All right, well, let's get back to our interview with Avi and hear his process for naming offers. I know we have a ton of questions about naming, but I, I would like to look under the hood of your business and have you talk through your process. And in some detail, just so we can understand how much work goes into this. And like you said, it's not something you can do in 20 minutes. There's a lot of attention to detail and research that goes into it. There is. The, the biggest piece of it to, to begin with, and this is before even taking on a project, I, I know there's a lot of variable among us copywriters, how much you want to know before you actually have a client sign on. To me, I always want in the first intake question to have a really clear sense of what this client will articulate to be their number one need from me. So I talked earlier about you know, two different packages. One of the ways that I will send somebody to more of a consultation is when they come even asking for a name, if I don't have a real great sense that that's going to solve what their current roadblock is or what their five or 10 year roadblock is, I'll recommend maybe it's a better idea to sit on some of these questions for a few hours and help work through them that way. And then in six months time or a year's time, if you're still chasing this particular product, uh, you know, maybe that would be the right time to actually name it. So really understanding upfront what they're going to get out of this uh, deliverable is is to me the most important thing. Um, The next section is I, I, the next piece is I send a questionnaire that that's a little more formal uh, that formalizes these questions a little more detail to ask them how how they perceive the market solving the solution that they are proposing or they're already providing in many cases. And what this does is not only give me the answers, but it's also I find it very helpful to understand from my client how the, their self-perception, um, because it's important when I'm communicating solutions in messaging down the line to be careful to address not only what I see as the right language, but what they might not value as, as at the same point. So in that process, I want to come back to them and say, I see you noticed you mentioned that nobody else is addressing X, Y, or Z, or company A is your biggest competition. I wonder, are people looking for the solution in a different place, in company B or C, or in an industry that's completely different, right? So uh, fleshing out that under, their self-understanding uh, is probably the next piece. Then I go to sort of a quiet zone for a little while where I go into competitive research, looking if there's competition already, com- you know, competitive products and services, looking at how they present themselves, looking at how their reviews tend to go, uh, speaking to customers of my client 
to see if there's a thread that goes through all of their reports. This is also a big blind spot I think a lot of us have speaking to clients and similar to the self-perception idea is are their customers experiencing, even happy customers, are they happy for the reasons that we think they are? So sometimes speaking to, and I think many, you know, you guys for sure, and many of the people listening to this have the same process, speaking to many of their customers and seeing, is there a thread that runs through this that was not obvious to the client that we can sort of pull out? And then there's the more technical side is knowing what sort of vibe, uh, association, feeling we want to be giving with this kind of name. Every industry and every need is going to be, you know, you're going to want to dig in a different place for it. If you're a, a fashion line going to be experienced by people walking into Nordstrom who are in this sort of slow sense of touching and feeling and checking it out, it, you know, you might be able to do something that's more abstract and like heritage based. If you're a uh, SaaS that's like zooming past your client in the opposite direction on the highway and you have like 0.0 seconds to, to scream something out the window. You want something much more impactful, something much more communicative. So a lot of those like technical things, what does it need to do? And then there's the development of the actual name, looking for inspiration and digging in various places to pull up the right associations and the right words and, and name storming all these different uh, places we could go with it. And then presenting it to the client, hopefully for a huge thumbs up. Um, and then I guess the, the next part is it's being there as much as I can for that, that little bit afterward to transition it to design and, and seeing it into the world. So that seems like a, a really in-depth process uh, and a good one. I'm wondering if you can make it real and tell us about a project that you've worked on, maybe some of the ideas that you had and the name that you ended up with at the end, if that's something that you could talk through. Ooh, a real life idea. <laughs> Yeah, I think one one that comes to mind was a company that specializes in reverse logistics. And I know most consumers use reverse logistics. Many, most probably don't know that they do. And in really short, what that is, is most products come from a manufacturer to a wholesaler, to a retailer, to the consumer. The second the consumer opens that box, it can no longer be sold as new. So that entire process exists in reverse. And it goes back to a retailer or a wholesaler or a refurbisher, a third-party seller, whatever it might be. But it's an actual industry that is complete. And when you go on most refurbishing, you know, electronics, secondhand sites and those kind of things, those are part of the reverse logistics thing. So one company that I think actually was called like Global Solutions LLC or something like that, had a really hard time getting in the door with some of the higher end companies they wanted to work with. So if they were, look, you know, sort of, downstream electronics still yeah i'll sell a lot to you you can sell it on ebay do what you'll do with it right but when they wanted to work with apple or dyson or some of these companies that are very particular and intentional about their brands they weren't getting in the door because you know global solutions what are you going to do with my products where are you going to sell them what are you going to do with them so we really there was a lot of uh, competitive research to do in there and what we landed on what my, the name i eventually recommended was back in the box and you can find them back in the box.com. What that really did, it was an amazing experience to feel within like 24 hours of recommending it. And before they even gave me the full approval, they started using it in some of their cold calls and started to see results from those who just heard a little earworm that said, these people are doing something with 
fewer hands in the process. Maybe they intuited. I mean, I don't want to go too deeply into the psychology and assume that everyone that hears something understands your whole brand story. But the associations of him out of the box, put it back in the box. Um, the associations of Jack in the box. Some of these like feelings that just say we have a, a specific process. We have a very uh, streamlined way of doing things. Got them into doors immediately. And it was very, very gratifying to see that happen. Okay. So Avi, for someone who's listening, again, I mean, I'm really interested in, in naming and these types of packages and processes. So let's say I want to try it and test it for the first time. And I've had some other experiences as a copywriter. So I feel like I'm equipped to at least try it. What are some mistakes I should watch out for? In the technical sense or in the business sense or both? With specifically with the naming process, if I'm offering that for the first time in, in any sense, any mistakes maybe that you've experienced or that you've seen other copywriters make or that you've heard about from your clients who maybe had a bad experience, anything I should just be aware of before I jump into my first naming project? Probably the, the biggest challenge people have with naming is not knowing where to dig or spending too much time and energy and frustration and hair pulling uh, in places that are non-starters. Um, so I think both from those who don't do this professionally and those who do, not having a sense of what general associations do we want this to communicate can really send you just all over the map and, and very, very frustrated. One question that I have, obvious, something that comes up a lot when we're talking with copywriters, and that is, when should you use your own name in business and when should you build a business name? I'm curious your thoughts on that. It's different if you're building a business outside of yourself or if you are the business. That's the biggest differentiator. And if you're an individual creative who's writing copy or a photographer, I'll start there because I think a lot of the listeners are probably probably fall into that category. Unless and until you have come up with a communicatable process that's different from what others are doing, I would say use your own name. I think in our industry, there's people like uh, uh, Joel Kletke's uh, case study buddy, or uh, you know, you guys, the Copywriter Club. I heard I heard you talking on a previous podcast about like you know it wasn't the most exciting name, but it communicated something different from receiving copy. Rather, you're joining a club. So this kind of thing, unless you know you're creating something that needs to be communicated differently because it is a different thing, that would be a time to name it. Before then, uh, it really serves you when you're an individual cre uh, creator and provider to build your own reputation on your own name. Another time that that would be different is if, you, if your reputation or your personality is like so out there. And I think of um, Talking Shrimp, right? Laura Belgray, some people may be familiar with her. I mean, she took a, a personality that's really different and not like, you know, hoppy copy or something that's just a little bit of a turn phrase on, on the product itself. Um, so that's a, as far as an individual creative, I would say build your own reputation on your own name unless and until you've done something different that needs to be branded. For a product or a company or store or something like that, I would go the complete opposite direction. And I would always recommend uh, away a from a personal name or a family name. Um, the reason is 
similar to how we do from a financial place, we'll you know incorporate or build an LLC so that your own finances are not uh, affected by whatever's going on in your business. In the other direction, you don't want your own business to be impacted by whatever's going on with your name. And that could be because someone with the same last name gets into the news, or it could be because you built equity that you want to sell eventually, but nobody's, you know, sees great value in starting, you know, taking the business further on someone else's last name. There's just so, so many things. You know, there could be a partners that split and, and one of them, you know, that can go wrong with naming a business after your own name that I, I think is not the right direction for most businesses. So let's say you present your name recommendations to your client and you've done all all the work to get there. What do you do if they just don't land and you feel like they're perfect, but your client is not in love with them? How do you move forward? Do you factor that in to the pricing, the original pricing, so that you have extra bandwidth to continue working on it? So the first thing I do is I turn off the Zoom and I put my head in my hands and cry for a few minutes. Um, <laughs> But it, I, I do try, and, and thankfully, I'm very grateful that over the over the years, it's gotten less of of a less of a chance of of hitting it completely, completely off mark. I'll get a no, but and and I'm fine with that. What scares me most is coming back with a name or any copy, really, where the client says you completely missed the mark. Where this is a different company. I don't know what you're talking about. So a lot of that comes from doing the legwork up front to really, really understand what we're looking to communicate so that that doesn't happen. Um, if a client doesn't like the particular name that I'm recommending, we try to find out why. Did it hit the marks, but it's a personal association that they just can't get around? I'm, I'm not going to sell someone overly on something that they just don't want to represent them. So there is, there is an element of feeling comfortable that this is the headline that represents my brand story. But as long as we've done the legwork up front to find out what this needs to communicate, I, I've, I've, we've seen pretty good success with, uh, with approval to say, you know, either you, we got it or some variation of that name within a, a short time should, should hit it. So Avi, one thing that I think a lot of people struggle with when it comes to names is that with marketing being this discipline that's been around for more than a hundred years and product development and all this, a lot of people start saying things like all the names are gone. And, you know, we start seeing weird combinations of words, you know, medications are, are named weird things or services are deliberately misspelled in order to make them original. What do you think about that kind of stuff? Is it effective? It can be. I, I always like to look at the why, not the what. And medications are a good example of that. You have the wonkiest names out there for a very specific reason. And part of the reason is the one you just mentioned, that they're running out of names. Now, that's especially relevant to medications because there's a ton of regulation around medication specifically to prevent a doctor from misprescribing something. If something had even the, the smallest chance of being confused with another one, that's a really, really big health problem for the individual as well as a liability problem for the provider. So they're really, really strict. And that's the reason you see tons of Zs and Xs and Ys and five-syllable names. They don't care if you can't pronounce it. You know, As long as the doctor is not going to get it wrong, uh, that's, the, that's their number one thing that they want to go for. But you know, just a, a brain, you know, a word smash kind of word, a portmanteau or something like that, 
can be very effective. I think, you know, one of the names that I like a lot is Fabletics. It's very basic. They came into the market with two sort of areas that don't necessarily work that well together, being fabulous and athletics, and that was their solution. And so pushing those two together, those two words together, have a nice flow, communicates really nicely, and, and it works. If you tried to do the same thing with two words that just don't tell you anything new or, you know, the combination doesn't create anything, then it's not a good solution. So I think it's less about the trend, less about the particular uh, formula and format for, for, for the name and more of why you chose that one and what the resulting name is and what it does. Are there more formulas, you know, like, so that one's the smash word, word smash, which makes sense, but are there... You know, maybe it's like, okay, then you could also play around with alliteration. Are there a couple go-to techniques that work for you when you're working through your process? Yeah, there are. And also informed a little bit by the particular brand and the need. But one that I like a lot is old words in a new use. So so something that, uh, you know, like the word life jacket is something that, uh, you know, we're all familiar with. It's a boring word, but there's a sign called life jacket beer. When you put that word on a beer, it's not something I named, but I just did come across it recently and jotted it down because I like it. Life jacket beer. There's nothing interesting about either of those words except that you use them in a new way. Extracting an element of something is, is something you see a lot where if someone has a, you know, shoe shop, they'll call it lace or something. I guess that's a weird that could be weird also, but people will extract like a particular ingredient. So that could be done well, or it could be done poorly. There's a pizza shop local to me that's called Basil Pizza and Wine Bar, which I think did it really, really well because basil does not have to be in every pizza unless it's a little bit upscale. So they sort of indicated with their name that this is a little bit different from your av- average pies place, you know? So, you know, there's this and that, which can be used to great effect or to boring effect. There are there are certain formulas that I do I, I do look through as well. Yeah. You mentioned Fabletics being one of your favorite names. I'm curious about other favorites. One of mine is Blackberry. I think the name Blackberry yeah. is brilliant for maybe three or four different reasons. You know, the, the fact that the thing actually looks a bit like a Blackberry. It's small, it's black, the little buttons look like seeds. It's kind of a cute name for something that's technical. So it makes it uh, more approachable, especially if Blackberries were around before smartphones and as you know, cell phones were just becoming accepted. So I'm, I'm curious, like, as you've looked at the world of names, what are some others that you're just like, wow, that is a fantastic name. I, I kind of wish I'd come up with it myself. Well, I'll say on Blackberry, yeah, it was that, that got a lot of coverage. I think David Plastic named it and he did a lot of uh, press on it because it was, it was such a great example of how you use the tactile part of the product and the newness of it and really to, to name something that would not belong on a piece of technology, right? It's a, it's a word everyone's familiar with, a Blackberry, but it is very new for that, for that scenario. Names around, I, you know, I, I tend to appreciate simple names that communicate something uh, specific to the right people. So like, I, I like Whole Foods as well. At the time that it was created, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a boring name, but it wasn't a very popular way to sell food. And we were going through decades of Americans buying ready to eat and fast food and all that. And when they came on the scene, Whole Foods, that's, you know, a good way to go about that. I'm sure there's a ton that will come to mind if I'm not 
pushing myself to think of it, but right now. Right, of course. Yeah, you'll, as soon as we end recording, you'll be like, oh, I should have mentioned yeah. this name, that name. I, I mean, I come across names all the time that I really appreciate, and, and I'm just not thinking of any right now. I may even have jotted down, but. How do you stay creative? What are some of your creative practices to keep you kind of sharp and, yeah, and just in tapping into that creativity as needed? Um, a lot of prayer. A lot of closing my eyes and asking, please feed me the right answers. And, and I'm not really joking. I mean, I, it is something that in a way, there is a lot of creativity in what we do as copywriters. There's also the need to remember that we're business people and we're providing a business service. So there isn't really an excuse to say, you know, I wasn't creative today, so I guess I'll try this again next right. month. Right. You, know, you could do that as an artist not necessarily as a commissioned artist, but even as a commissioned artist, you could say, you know, you know how it is with artists. So I just not coming to me when you have a business need that you're solving for somebody, there is a time frame, There is a particular right and wrong answer. Not always is there only one right and wrong answer, but you know, there's, there's a way that this needs to get done. So part of seeing myself as a business has helped me stop getting stuck by like, oh, I'm not feeling creative. I, I, you know, you have a job to do and there's something that needs to be done. So push through and do it. Definitely easier said than done. I recognize that. Uh, but part of how that happens is also routine. And I, when I went solo, something that was very important to me was to see myself as a business. And so I rented an office about a mile from my home and I got a new email address and a new desk phone and, and really separate this so that I go to work every day to do my work and go home uh, and not live in sort of a feeling of a, of a creative, you know, what, what could I think of today just as a sort of abstract uh, hobby type thing. And then there's the, uh, the, the parts of, you know, when things do get a little bit stuck, I would say the most helpful thing to get out of a, of a thinking rut is to go back to the information of this project and read it again. If it's a book I'm trying to market, just page through that book again. If it's a, you know, if it's a, a course, read what they're talking about and see if I can come up with a better title for the course or what am I actually dealing with? Have I gone too far off base where my brain is getting itself stuck because it's not even trying to solve the original problem. It's just like going off in places. So going back to the stuff and saying, okay, what's the ultimate need here? What are they actually expecting from me? Is this getting bigger than it needs to be? because my brain's making it that way, but it's just really pretty straightforward. So Avi, if I'm a copywriter and I've never done naming before, but I'm thinking, hey, this would be a great service for me to add to my business. What should I do to, you know, to learn the art of this? Are there books that I should check out? Do I just create a product and throw it up on my website and start doing it? Are there things that I really need to know before I, I get started? Just tell me, you know, let me be your assistant or your, your apprentice. What do I have to do to be the next Avi? Oh, I don't want them to take that, but you can be the next Rob. <laughs> I think that Looking at names out there and seeing, again, not what they are, but why they work. And in many ways, developing your own opinion about them. And so you may think that BlackBerry was a, a very poor choice of name, especially as, you know, the product itself has gone the way of it's gone. So, I mean, I, I think most people would say it's pretty good, but you might choose to say you have a philosophy that's different. And for whatever reason, you see that naming things in a different way, things that are very literal. I don't know. I, I think most people wouldn't say that uh, might be so, so sort of allowing yourself to develop your own 
perspective on what a good name needs to do can be a good place to start. And then looking out in the world and seeing the names that do something for you, that speak to you in a certain way, why? Ask yourself what, you know, what would be a literal way of doing this and how did they change my perspective through their name or through their slogan or through that first encounter copy? Looking at the whole picture of what the process entails, we talked a little bit about the uh, research going into it and then the recommendations and knowing that it's clear for domain name, for social handles, for trademark, knowing what you might need to do here and not necessarily providing all of it, but not getting caught recommending something after tons and tons of work that can't, you know, it was just a non-starter for, a, a, you know, because of a blind spot like that. As far as books, one of, the, one of the books that I really appreciate is called Don't Call It That by Eli Altman. And he has a company called 100 Monkeys, uh, which specializes in naming. And I've seen his, he has a kind of a workbook called Don't Call It That, which I actually use as well. And he has a naming game that comes along with it or is associated. So there's, there's ways to, those are, those are good places, I think, to start and, uh, and see how others are doing it. Okay. My next question, you know, we talk a lot about lead gen with copywriters. Most of our conversations are, okay, how do I, how do I get clients? How do I find clients? Just curious, you know, what has helped you land the right types of clients? What's worked for you? Well, I'm, been very, very blessed to have happy clients in the past and a very good network and a good community within my own personal Jewish community. Many people who work with others in the community who have referred me uh, or who get to see my work in a sort of narrower context than than all over the place. So that was the first getting the business off the ground. More recently, I found a pretty good stride on LinkedIn. I can't necessarily say that I, I, I get like a ton of leads directly. Oh, you know, this post does that. But I, but I think I've, I've been able to see more informed inquiries, people with a better sense of what copywriting is, what naming is good for, what I specifically can do. And so in addition to getting leads in that way, I'm also finding, like I said, that, I, that people are, are more, further along the awareness of what this can do for them um, and why it's valuable. So that's been helpful as well. And networking has been very helpful to me as well. I'm very, very grateful to you guys. As I came to Nashville for the first time. Well, I guess it was only once in Nashville, but I came to TCC IRL for the first time this past March, which was incredible. I've been working a lot with Amy Posner and many of the people that she has in her circle, which have, they've been just an incredible group of people to get to know you know, what each of us is really great at and refer each other for those specialties. So I think referrals from clients, for me, LinkedIn has worked and some of these referrals to other professionals who you respect and, and, and get what you're doing have been very helpful. Kira, you've got more questions. Keep asking. <laughs> Sorry, Rob. I, I was trying to, not to hog the mic. Yeah. So my one of my last questions. I'm curious what you're struggling with right now. I mean, you have a great business. You're clear on what you bring to the table. What's the struggle today in your business? There are probably two aspects that I'd really like to have a better handle on. One is scaling in the near term. So thank God I've seen the business really improve and expand and grow over the last 18 months specifically. And I started taking on uh, 
junior copywriter for certain projects so I can actually get more volume going. So that's sort of new and getting more processes into place. So scaling in the near term is something that I'm not great at. And I think many of us struggle with delegating, especially because writing and communication is what we sell. So even a simple email of, you know, can you make a, can, can you meet on Zoom? You know, I'm like nervous. Is it going to come off with the wrong tone? Like every word in an email is so important. So that's something I struggle with, uh, being able to delegate and do this in a way that hopefully can help the business really scale. And in the long term, I think that there's probably for all of us a certain peak. We're growing and growing and growing and getting more of a reputation and, and people really turning to us for a certain expertise. And then, as I've observed, they either become a legend or a has-been where there's a new class of people that come up and do what you do very, very well, better perhaps. There's new knowledge, there's new technology, there's all different things like that. And so how am I putting things into place today so that when that inevitably does happen, there's a sense that the experience I have is still valuable, if not the freshest and youngest to, to those that are doing it now, but it's not, you know, it hasn't just dropped off a cliff. There's a lot of, you know, bedrock type stuff built in that's still going to be useful down the line in consultation or things like that. That's something that I think about as well. Before we wrap, tell us a little bit more about what's next for you. What are you most excited about right now? I'm really enjoying the day by day. <laughs> I really am. It's, uh, you know, we have, I have a wife and three kids at home and we've been, building this together. My wife is a partner in the business, a silent partner, but she gives all the good advice. Um, so we're building this together as sort of, you know, I said that I, I separating yourself and your business is important than it is. And we were very, we work really hard at the boundary of that, but I love what I'm doing and I enjoy it beyond just the actual, you know, the work of it. So Building this together and seeing where we go as a family and as we grow up a little bit, seeing my kids grow. We've got a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old and they're just starting to... My daughter is really great at naming, actually. She loves this stuff. So <laughs> she comes to dinner every night with a new idea for a, for a business that she can name, right? I'm, I'm just enjoying the day by day and, and trying to do one thing at a time to head in the right direction of where we want to see this go. Thinking about hiring your daughter to name something. I don't know what I need to name right now, but it sounds like uh, she might have an inside track to to the experts, but is still you know just figuring it out. So yeah, she's, she's she's I would say hire her now. She's really good. She, yeah, she might be the bargain, the the diamond in the rough, uh, ready to to shine. So yeah, Avi, thank you so much for everything you've shared. If somebody wants to connect with you, you know, get on your list, or you know, even work with you to name a program or product or service, where should they go? The best place to find me is for a project probably is aviweb.com. It gives you a little sense of some of the things I've done. And there's a form on the bottom, not too difficult to just, you know, if this sounds like something that is what you're looking for, you can schedule a time to speak. I'm also on LinkedIn. I guess my name, aviweb, A-V-I-W-E-B-B. Uh, those are probably the two best places to be in touch. Thank you, Avi. And it was so great to meet you uh, in Nashville. So I'm glad that we were able to meet in person. And thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. I am too. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. Thanks, Avi. That's the end of our interview with Avi. I've got notes as I always do, but Kara, what about you? I went first last time. You go first. What stood out to you here? Lots of notes. Okay. Well, I, I really appreciated that Avi talked about not everyone being a good fit for him and 
I respect the fact that he has conversations with prospects and will tell them if they aren't a good fit and maybe they should return in a year or six months, or maybe it's just they're not ready and they need to work through some other business struggles first. And I think that's just really cool as a business owner to be able to get to a place where you can say, hey, this is what I offer is really valuable. I know it can help you, but also you're not quite ready for it. You would get a lot more out of this package if you worked on this part of your business first. And so that type of diagnosis is really powerful. And I'm sure that his clients appreciate it. Yeah, it's really tempting when a client comes to you with a need just to say, yes, I can do that, rather than taking the step back and say, wait, is this the thing that we really need? Is this the thing that's really going to move your business forward? And it takes a level of maturity in business to be able to take that step back, like Avi was talking about and saying, um, you're not ready for this yet. You've got some other stuff that needs to happen. And, and maybe that's stuff I can help you with. Maybe it's not stuff I can help you with. It just, it has to happen first. And uh, I appreciate that as well. And we also talked about some of his naming techniques. So I thought felt like that was a fun part of the conversation to hear some of his examples. I know he talked about um, back, back in the box as a name for one of his clients, a reverse logistics company, and, um, and how he uses word smash to come up with different names like Fabletics and how he brings, you know, old words combined with a new use like life jacket beer. So, I mean, just hearing him talk through it just feels so creative. It, it, to me, it was just like, oh, we have such a um, large creative capacity as copywriters. And and maybe sometimes like I'm personally not using that enough. And how, how much farther can I push that creativity with the client work that I do? And so it was just more inspiring than anything to hear his names and how he's worked with his clients. Yeah, I, I know I asked Avi about some of his favorite names that he's seen, maybe that he hadn't actually created, but that others had. And we talked about Fabletics and BlackBerry. I, I've been thinking about it too. And I was just kind of thinking, you know, some other great names like haagen ice cream, which is totally made up. It doesn't mean anything, but it feels, you know, really extravagant. Uh, you know, sort of it, it, obviously, it, or it's, it's, I guess it's not obvious because it's not real, but it sounds sort of Dutch or European. And so there's gotta be, you know, some kind of mystery to it or whatever. Uh, what a great name or, or even product names like Walkman and Game Boy that tell you exactly kind of what it is. I, I mean, it, it just like, they feel like the product that you have in your hand and there was a company that I, there are actually a lot of little companies that came to us when I worked at the startup that I was part of where we did brand identity, you know, not necessarily naming, but creating the logos and all of the uh, design elements that would go along with that, including copy. And one of them uh, was called the Sodfather, and it was a, a gardener uh, yard work kind of thing. And, you know, of course the designs sort of followed the Mario Puzo um, design of the movie, whatever, but it was just, it, it was very creative. And, and it's just those kinds of names that just sort of stick in your head and they, they heart, good names are hard. And so I just want to appreciate some of those good names that are out there. You know, which name I still don't like as a business and a brand, even though I appreciate the brand. Which one is that? Goop. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, worse. it's yeah. It, it's, it sounds like a, a blob of stuff you wouldn't want to touch, right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't like it from the beginning. I still don't like it. I even though I will, you know, shop and and surf the the brand and check it out, but I just it's never stuck with me. Can't make it happen. 
it's easy to go wrong with names and and uh, maybe maybe goop does resonate with with some of that audience but yeah, if it resonates if you're listening to this and it resonates with you please reach out to us i would just like to know if it does resonate with anyone at all. Okay. We also talked about creativity and how to pull that creativity into your work, especially for Avi, who, who really, you know, his work is so creative. Um, and I, I liked his tips, you know, around getting out of your space, going to an office space. I mean, that for me, I recently started going to a coffee shop on Mondays, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but after not doing it for a couple of years, it's huge for just helping me feel more creative and think a lot bigger about what I'm doing. What helps you, Rob, feel more creative in, in your work? So for me, there's a couple of things. It always helps if I have a clean desk. So when I when my desk is sort of stacked with piles of things, lots of open books, lots of stuff going on, it's really hard for me to get focused on that. Uh, we've mentioned, you know, Brain FM in the past. I love that for just helping me focus and be more creative. There's some really cool uh, musical mixes that they have that just let me get into that zone. Um, but then also like play, just sort of being able to get up away from the desk, walk around, be outside, you know, play with the dog, um, even, even, you know, taking time to go to the bookstore or, you know, sit down and watch a movie, those kinds of things, I think just pull you away from the stream of thought that is work and really helps focus and, and, you know, be a little bit more creative. Uh, the one other, the one other thing that I'll mention that I, I love to do, it doesn't necessarily end up reflecting in the writing that I do, but I've got a bunch of design annuals that have you know, these fantastic examples of copywriting and, and old ads that are, you know, among the best of the old ads. I love just paging through those, seeing the headlines, the way the copies are written, you know, the, the interesting turns of phrase. And that usually gets my brain sort of thinking a little bit differently when I'm looking at that, not necessarily as a way of writing my own headlines, but just to kind of have me thinking in a different direction. Yes. And um, we also talked with Avi about, um, as we were talking about the names and which names resonate with him, which ones don't resonate, he offered some advice to just continue to think about names as we hear them day to day. I mean, the goops of the world are as you, you know, purchase new products to think about the name and think about why it works or why it doesn't work and to just form an opinion about it, whether or not you share it, um, just to learn by forming opinions because we have lots of opinions. And so why not learn through that process? And I think what also could be cool is just creating your own marketing content by sharing what works and what doesn't work, even if it's not your area of expertise, even if you're not a naming expert, you could still you could still share what names resonate with you, why you think it works, break it down um, and be really selective because I think those opinions and those viewpoints uh, really help differentiate you from everyone else in the space. Agreed. The last thing that I want to mention is what Avi had to say about when to use your personal name as a business name or when to use a business name. I thought his advice was really good. We get that question a lot. And, you know, as I think about it, I think about what is the thing that people are looking for when they search for you? Do you want them to search for your name and find you? Or do you want them to search for something like SaaS copywriter and find you? And depending on how you answer that question, maybe changes the answer to, you know, for, for your own business, whether you should use your name or your business name. We did talk about this on the very first episode of the podcast, episode one, 
uh, with Kaylee Moore and how she actually changed from from using a business name to using her own name. And that's kind of an interesting discussion. Yeah, that conversation never gets old because it continues to resurface. And I'm always thinking about it as I think about new projects. I'm like, well, where does this new project fit? Is it under, you know, the Copywriter Club? Is it under Kira Hug? Is it like a different brand? And how does it all fit together? It's kind of a fun, fun puzzle to put together. We want to thank Avi Webb for joining us and sharing so much about what he does as the name guy. If you want to connect with Avi, you can visit aviweb.com. That's A-V-I-W-E-B-B.com. Or check him out on LinkedIn because he tends to spend a lot of time there and post quite a bit. You might be able to connect with him there. This week's review shout out is from listener Elle's Angel. She's in Great Britain. I'm assuming it's a she since it's Elle. Maybe I'm making that assumption wrong. But she's in Great Britain. She called herself a loyal follower. It's uh, Her review is short and sweet. Five stars. And thanks for that, Elle. Uh, she says, I love this podcast. Packed with great info, great guests. And I can still listen to the car with my son around as the language is clean. And yeah, usually the language is pretty clean here. Maybe I feel like we should make it dirtier. It's change clean. that up. <laughs> no, we don't want to lose Elle. So thanks, Elle's Angel, for listening, leaving a review. And if you're listening and want us to mention you on a future episode of the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review yourself. It just takes a second. And we love to hear what you think. And if you want to listen to even more podcast episodes, you could go way back to the beginning of the Copywriter Club and tune into the very first episode with Kaylee Moore, where we talked about whether you should use a personal brand name or a company brand name and why she changed her approach. I would like to listen to that because I, this is five years ago, so I do not remember that episode. Time to tune in again. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I was a teenager back then. Uh, And if you want to dive deeper into the research process, listen to our interview with Hannah Shamji. That's episode 154. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you liked what you heard today, share a screenshot of the episode with your favorite takeaway and tag us with that on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn. And we will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better, copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money. Listen.